Revelation 16, verses 8 through 11. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was granted to him to burn the people with fire. So the people were burned with severe burns, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has authority over these plagues, and they did not repent to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness, so they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their ulcers, yet they did not repent of their deeds. Father God, we come to you and pray that we would exhibit grace that these people did not, that uh, we would cling to you in opposition to these people who blasphemed you, that we would humble ourselves before you as we see the opposite in these people. Help us, Father, not to grow with uh, depression or despair when we look at the reactions of the world because that's exactly how every heart of ours would react apart from your grace. Help us instead to trust that your grace is sufficient to break through the toughest and the strongest of walls to tear down every high thing that has exalted itself against you. And so I pray, Father, that you would be with us, that you would enable us to worship you as we continue to interact with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come now to another absolutely remarkable prophecy, this one showing God's judgments on the empire of Rome, the beast of Rome. Now, the previous three bowls were dealing with the last days of Israel, and the next three bowls are going to be dealing with God's judgments on Rome, but we're only going to have time to look at two of those three uh, bowls. And I'm going to approach the text a little bit differently today. Instead I'm uh, of diving into the text, I'm going to give you a brief overview of the background history, first of all, and then I'll make applications as I go through the verses. As I just mentioned, I believe these verses deal with God's judgments on Rome, uh, beginning with the death of the seventh head of the seven-headed sea monster with all of his progeny. Uh, the seventh head of the beast was Vespasian, and his progeny are his two sons, Titus and Domitian. And the phrase, the throne of the beast in verse 10, together with the way that we've discussed in the past, the progress of these bulls absolutely necessitates that these take place during the reign of Titus. Now, we saw before that Titus co-ruled right from day one of when Vespasian, his father, went on to the throne. In fact, we saw that he was actually the power uh, behind Vespasian. Vespasian was kind of like a puppet king initially. And uh, he was the one that got possessed by that demon called the beast after uh, Nero uh, died. And so um, these signs are signs against uh, Titus. All three were very wicked men, but the focus really is on Titus. And these signs were so spectacular that even the pagans spread rumors that God was upset with the three emperors. Uh, there was something about the history of these events that made the people think, you know, these are not natural. These are God's judgments. He himself must be judging our empire, and for pagans to think that is quite something. Now let me start with the signs that pagan historians uh, thought were related to Vespasian, the seventh head. 
God sent a spectacular comet shortly before Vespasian's death that Suetonius, Biocassius, Aurelius Victor all saw as an omen that the emperor was about to die. There is a line in Plutarch that states that Vesuvius erupted before Vespasian died and at least one old manuscript of Pliny is consistent with that, but there's plenty of evidence that the volcano actually erupted after he died, about two months after, or, uh, well, uh, maybe even up to a year after. There's, there's, there's variation amongst the secular histories, a lot of debate on, on those um, dates. Either way, all are agreed that it was especially taken as an evil omen against Titus. He was the focus. He was the real ruler behind Vespasian, and he continued to rule after Vespasian died in 79. Now, Juvenal mentions flooding of Armenia and Parthia, a massive earthquake that demolished uh, cities. In fact, the earthquake broke open the mausoleum of um, Caesar Augustus and uh, left a big gaping chasm, a really, really deep uh, chasm. But at each of those signs, Vespasian simply joked that those uh, signs, those omens, were intended for somebody else. Uh, Suetonius's history of the 12 Caesars reports some of his jokes and then said, nothing could stop this flow of humor, even the fear of imminent death. At the fatal sign of a comet that had long, long streak that they said looked like hair after it, now he was bald, but he said, look at that long hair. The king of Parthia must be going to die. <laughs> he didn't want it to be an omen for him. His deathbed joke was, dear me, I must be turning into a god uh, because, you know, they deified emperors after they died. Now, he did not take these signs seriously at all, but that didn't stop God from uh, killing him. The year that spanned the spring of 79, just before Vespasian died, to the spring of 80, had a thick succession of incredible signs that are especially related to what these verses are talking about. They were God's warnings as well as his judgments, and numerous ancient Romans thought that these signs were indeed omens against Titus, the real power behind the throne. They still loved Titus because he, he gave him lots of money. He was a big welfare king. He just distributed money and impoverished the kingdom by distributing so much. But reports show that they wondered if God was going to hammer him. Now let me give some of the signs that were especially attributed to Titus. There was a solar eclipse, then two eruptions of Mount Vesuvius which completely blotted out the sun over Italy with a deep, deep darkness. The second eruption of the volcano is thought by scientists to have unleashed 100,000 times the thermal energy of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombings. Scientists who have studied both the history and the deposits at Pompeii and Herculaneum say that the second blast kind of spewed out a dense, ground-hugging, rolling, um, and fast-moving uh, flow of, of uh, ash and gases and uh, rock, basically a pyroclastic flow that they estimate had temperatures uh, going up to about 1,000 degrees centigrade. So that'd be 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit. Those who were closer to Vesuvius uh, were instantly killed with uh, brains boiling and skulls exploding in a flash. Those a little bit further away, uh, they found the remains uh, indicate that within seconds they were burned right down to the bone. Um, then 
Um, by the way, this was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. I had mentioned that some time back, uh, which said this about <coughs> the soldiers, the Gentile soldiers who would come and fight against Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay, so this would be Titus's and Vespasian's uh, troops. It said this, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now this literally happened to Titus's troops because they just happened to be vacationing in Pompeii when the volcano erupted and uh, they all uh, got killed. So um, uh, the, there was a bunch of Roman and Jewish dignitaries that got killed there as well, but ancient Jewish historians said this is God's payback for what Rome did to the temple. And I think there may be something to that because this is the way God worked in the Old Testament. Remember that God sent Babylon to punish Israel for its sins. And then he turns around and he punishes Babylon for the incredibly inhumane, horrible things that they did to Israel. So it's kind of the same thing. Anyway, the legionaries were wiped out. But the closest people to the volcano, they didn't really suffer that much. It was a very quick death. Those further away from the pyroclastic flow uh, were scalded badly, many dying much later with a great deal of suffering. Those even further away were scalded but did not die. Uh, I used to hold that this was identical to the burning in bowl four, and in a bit I'll discuss why I now think that may not be the case. Ancient writers say that the massive volume of smoke and ash that was blasted out of uh, Vesuvius uh, completely blotted out the sun over Italy, Syria, Africa, and Egypt. So it was really a, a massive uh, darkening of the skies. Not just an eclipse, it was a complete blotting out of the sun. The Roman historian Dio Cassius says, the day was turned into night and light into darkness. But the judgments didn't stop there. Uh, because there was a massive fire that burnt down the city of Rome, it also scalding many people, third-degree burns it appears uh, to have been for many of the people uh, who survived, and it didn't stop there. This was a year of enormous judgments upon Rome, just one judgment after another. The Roman historian Tacitus said, Italy was prostrated by disasters either entirely novel or that recurred only after a long succession of ages. One of those uh, disasters was some strange disease within weeks or months of Vesuvius erupting. There was a disease outbreak uh, that um, was experienced that was absolutely devastating. Uh, modern historians estimated that uh, there was uh, 10,000 Romans a day or more who were dying for a long period of time. There was a massive destruction through this epidemic. So that's the broad overview of some of the historical background. So let's dig into the text. And you'll remember that the bowls moved backwards in time from AD 136. So even though they were poured out in the order of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven within the vision, the literal Greek of bowl number seven indicates that historically they began to be fulfilled with bowl seven and working backwards. And I gave a whole bunch of other proofs uh, that the book was constructed as a chiasm. In other words, it's moving forward uh, to chapter 14, then it moves backward in time from chapter 14. Well, that means that bowl five 
was historically fulfilled before bowl four because it's moving backwards in time, right? And let me tell you how I interpreted these bowls up until this past year and uh, where I am today. Initially, I saw bowl five as the initial blast of Mount Vesuvius and bowl four as the second blast. Now that fits the text, it fits history. Uh, first blast was mainly ash and it covered uh, Rome, Syria, Africa, Egypt, and a thick suffocating cloud that completely blotted out the sun, kept people actually even from seeing through the atmosphere. So bowl five speaks of the throne of the beast, that would be Rome, being full of darkness, and it was full of darkness. I still tie bowl five to the volcano. Now there's debate on the, on the date of the volcanoes erupting and, and they range all the way from early 79 to early uh, 80. The establishment dating is August 24 of 79. And uh, that's why I'm iffy uh, on when the bulls, whether the bulls are separated by 50 days or whether they're separated by 13 months. But I used to hold that bull four was also connected to Mount Vesuvius and that it was the second eruption. In other words, that pyroclastic, uh, superheated flow. So I used to hold they were just one day apart. Okay, I saw the first blast as darkening in bowl five, the second blast as burning in bowl four. And seen that way, every detail of the bowls fits perfectly. They're, they, it's just like a two back-to-back -back judgments. Now that is so simple, so straightforward that uh, I hadn't even considered any other alternatives. It just seemed intuitively obvious for me. They were both related to Vesuvius. What has complicated this for me is that last year I became convinced through exegesis that these uh, bowls are temple bowls and they represent the seven festivals of Israel going backwards. So. If bowl one happened on the festival of tabernacles and bowl two on the day of atonement and bowl three on the day of trumpets and bowl four on the day of Pentecost and bowl five on the day of first fruits, then these two bowls have to be separated by at least 50 days if they occur on the same year. And if Dio Cassius is correct, he, he talks about the blast happening the following, I mean the, the, the fire happening the following year then it has to be separated by 13 months. And there's a lot of debate uh, in the secular histories. So uh, it's complicated my study on this. It would have been a whole lot easier and not having to go through so much archaeological study to just take both of them as referring to um, Vesuvius. But my whole approach to this book is to try to look at every biblical clue and have the biblical clues alone drive my exegesis and then only after I have done that to go to history and see, okay, is there anything in history that fulfills this? So my exegesis kind of mandates that these two bowls be separated. So I asked myself afterwards, well, that is very odd. Is there any fire that burned people and darkened the sky and that was, you know, on the same level of this that happened on a Pentecost, uh, you know, some uh, 50 days later or a year later. And I started looking through the histories and sure enough, there was. There was a fire that burned down Rome 
and burned for three days and three nights, which itself may have some uh, prophetic uh, significance. And interestingly, there was something about that fire that made the pagan authorities, the, the historians who recorded it, say, you know, there is something weird about this fire. This is not caused by humans. It's not accidental. It's not arson. This looks like it's divine in origin. Okay, so we'll look at that in a bit. So that gives you kind of an overview of how I've tried to approach the text. So what I'm going to do is look at bowl five first, then bowl four. I'm going to take it in the historical order rather than in the order of the vision. Now verse 10 refers to an angel pouring out his bowl. Now since angels are invisible, I don't think I really need to look for a historical fulfillment of that. But I do find it interesting that Dio Cassius, the Roman historian, speaks of onlookers being astonished to see these giants, not only in Mount Vesuvius, but in all of the other disasters that came upon, uh, uh, upon Rome. And let me read his uh, history at length. He says, numbers of huge men, quite surpassing any human stature, such creatures, in fact, as the Titans are pictured to have been, appeared now on Mount Vesuvius, now on the surrounding country, and again in the cities, wandering over the earth day and night, and also flitting through the air. So that sounds more like angels, you know, going through the air. By the way, the titans for them were huge supernatural beings. Usually titans is translated uh, as giants. So he goes on. Then suddenly a portentous crash was heard as if the mountains were tumbling in ruins, and first huge stones were hurled aloft, rising as high as the very summits. Then came a great quantity of fire and endless smoke, so that the whole atmosphere was obscured and the sun was entirely hidden as if eclipsed. Thus day was turned into night and light into darkness. Some thought that the titans were rising again in revolt, for at this time also many of their forms could be discerned in the smoke, and moreover a sound as of trumpets was heard while others believed that the whole universe was being resolved into chaos or fire. Therefore they fled, some from the houses into the streets, others from outside into the houses, now from the sea to the land, and now from the land to the sea. For in their excitement they regarded any place where they were not as safer than where they were. While this was going on, an inconceivable quantity of ashes was blown out, which covered both sea and land and filled all the air. It wrought such injury of various kinds as chance befell to men and farms and cattle, and in particular it destroyed all fish and birds. Indeed, the amount of dust taken altogether was so great that some of it reached Africa and Syria and Egypt, and it also reached Rome, filling the air overhead and darkening the sun. Now, whether those giants that they saw and the volcano went elsewhere uh, were the angels or not, the text of Revelation, the inspired text, says very clearly these angels are involved in the volcanic activity. Now I find that fascinating, very, very interesting that um, Scripture attributes angels, the role of angels, to what we tend to think of as natural catastrophes, natural disasters. Maybe natural disasters aren't natural after all. Maybe they are supernatural. Uh, John Frame in his uh, Systematic Theology actually thinks we ought to consider that as being a possibility. Uh, we Westerners, I think, need to study angelology. 
It's just a big word for study, the doctrine of angels, uh, because I think they are far more involved in the blessings and disasters that hit this world than we Westerners tend to think about. So in any case, somehow this volcano is unleashed by angels. Angels are incredibly powerful beings. And it was intended as a warning to Titus, the emperor, whom you will remember was previously possessed by the same uh, bestial demon that possessed Nero. So verse 10 says that this fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. So where is the throne of the beast? It's in the city of Rome. Who is the beast? It's Titus. And so we would expect that these signs are going to appear at least in the city of Rome and in fact uh, we would expect that the angel since he's pouring out this bowl on the throne of the beast that they're going to see it as completely covering uh, that area at least the diseases are going to be uh, originating from that area when disaster after disaster hit Titus's kingdom superstitious people began to think you know what our emperor is jinxed we need to get rid of him, but rather than turning to God, they turned to politics and they talked to his brother Domitian. Domitian poisoned Titus and he took over the throne. That was a bad move because he's probably almost worse than Titus was. And uh, it did not solve things, it didn't turn out cool at all. So this was not an empty symbol or an empty threat. Without repentance, Titus was soon to lose the throne. And what signs did God give? Well, first he used the volcano to completely plunge the entire empire of Titus into deep darkness. Chapman and others see this as a clear reference to Mount Vesuvius, and I agree with them. Uh, verse 10 says, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, even though Rome was far enough away from the blast to avoid any heat from the superheated pyroclastic flow, they were not far away enough from the volcano to avoid the immense dump of ash uh, all over uh, that city. And all of the historians speak of a deep darkness that penetrated everything. Dio Cassius says that the ash was, quote, filling the air overhead. He said that, quote, the atmosphere was obscured so that you could not see through it. He speaks of the sun being darkened, being entirely hidden. Day was turned into night and light into darkness. The eyewitness Pliny the Younger said, it was daylight now elsewhere in the world, but there the darkness was darker and thicker than any night. So being darker and thicker than any night seems to me like a very literal fulfillment of the phrase, his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And how far did that darkness go? Well, Dio Cassius said extend, extended to all of Rome, Africa, Syria, and Egypt. So just like all of the other symbols in this book, there was a literal historical fulfillment that you can find in the history books. And what was it symbolic of? Well, I think it was symbolic of the fact that Vespasian and Titus were going to have their lights out, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. Uh, it was his imminent death. His kingdom would be lost. Plutarch uh, ties it to the death of Vespasian via the Sibyl oracles. Others tie it to the death of uh, Titus. And because this is explicitly tied to the beast, I see it as, as predicting Titus's imminent uh, death. But the next phrase indicates that there's some connection with this volcano and the disease epidemic that followed. Verse 10 ends with, so they gnawed their tongues 
because of the pain. Now, obviously, there was pain for those who were near the pyroclastic blast, and so it could be referring to that in part, but it seems to be more than that. This seems to be something that at least reached the uh, city of Rome, if not originating in the city of Rome. <clears throat> and so um, if you look at verse 11, it says, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their ulcers. And most people take this as some kind of a disease that manifests itself in the symptoms of erupting boils or ulcers or something of that nature. So whatever kind of disease it was, it produced these symptoms. Now, did this happen literally in history? Yes, it did. One of the worst plagues, or what one Roman called uh, the, the worst pestilences that Rome had ever seen, came on the heels of the volcano, was blamed by the ancient historians on the volcanic ash. Dio Cassio says, these ashes brought a terrible pestilence upon them. Now how the two are connected, he doesn't explain, but just as he says the ash produced the disease, this says the darkness produced the disease, and it's the ash that produces the darkness. There's some connection between them. The Roman historian Suetonius says that besides the misery of the ash and the darkness, the empire was, quote, afflicted with a plague the like of which had hardly ever been known before. And he goes on to show how Titus did everything in his power to stop this disease, sending medicine, uh, sending finances and human help and offering up sacrifices to the gods and all to no avail. They began to realize this is not just something natural. This is supernatural. This is, this is God himself sending a plague that cannot be cured. In fact, his offering up sacrifices to the gods would have made the true God of heaven uh, more upset, right? But uh, Titus knew the true God, by the way. We've talked about that before, and he hated the true God. It was a very self-conscious hatred against God. So though the pain was excruciating, though God gave them plenty of time to repent, even though they could see it and admitted that this is a supernatural event, they did not repent. Instead, they exploded in blasphemy against God. The text says, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their ulcers, yet they did not repent of their deeds. Well, what were their deeds that they didn't repent of? Well, if you, think, if you can think of it, they did it and more. Uh, when archaeologists first uncovered the remains at Pompeii that had been uh, completely buried, uh, by ash. Uh, even these people who were so secular were embarrassed and they cordoned off certain sections so that the public could not see it because of the gross pornographic nature of the frescoes and all of the things that they saw there. Interestingly, three things were found etched on the walls that showed either Jewish or Christian testimony against these evils. Hebrew names such as Martha are on the walls, and some people assume they were either Jewish or Christian slaves. Second, the words Sodom and Gomorrah were written in graffiti on one of the walls. Uh, Romans didn't even know about Sodom and Gomorrah, so it had to be either a Jew or a Christian who wrote that on the wall as a testimony against the filth of that place. Someone even wrote the Hebrew word cherem, which means 
marked for destruction on the doorway of a door. I mean, this is just amazing things that they have been discovering in archaeology that to me show there was a biblical testimony about the evils, the deeds that were going on in Pompeii. In any case, it says they did not repent, but instead blaspheme. Now, you, we've already uh, given to you some examples of the blasphemies of Titus in the past, both Vespasian and Titus. Titus especially was very self-conscious in his hatred for the God of the Bible. Nine years before, he had entered the temple in Jerusalem, declared himself to be a God, insisted that people worship him, but now God was showing him his absolute helplessness. In effect, God was showing Titus, you make a lousy God, right? He was uh, humbling him. One ancient Jewish writer says of the demonic blasphemies of Titus nine years earlier, he entered the Holy of Holies and with his sword slashed the curtain. Through a miracle of blood, uh, through a miracle, blood spurted forth and he thought that he had killed God himself. He brought two harlots and spreading out a scroll of the law of God beneath them, transgressed with them on top of the altar. He began to speak blasphemies and insults against heaven, boasting, one who wars against a king in a desert and defeats him cannot be compared to one who wars against a king in his own palace and conquers him. He began to blaspheme, curse, vilify, and spit towards him on high, saying, so this is the one who you say slaughtered Sisera and Sennacherib. Here I am in his house and in his domain. If he has any power, let him come out and face me. A year later, he continued this blasphemy when he was in a ship and a storm came against him. One record says, a gale arose to drown him in the sea. He stood on the deck of the ship and began to blaspheme, curse, vilify, and spit toward him on high. He said, when I was in his house and in his domain, he did not have the power to come and face me, but now here he has come forth to meet me. It seems that the God of the Jews has power only where there is water. So you can see the demonic and high-handed way in which uh, Titus's hatred for God was displayed. And that hatred was shared by his troops. So it's not by accident, I don't think, that his troops were stationed, or not stationed, they were on vacation in Pompeii when um, the eruption happened. Archaeologists have dug up some of that legion's artifacts. In any case, I read those quotes to remind you of how much Titus hated God and that he was perfectly capable of blasphemy. Now, what I want to look at very quickly is what kind of ongoing blasphemies did Titus engage in immediately after Vesuvius? Just look at the blasphemies after Vesuvius. Well, the year after, he minted at least two different coins commemorating his conquest of Judea and declaring himself to be God. I mean, it's almost as if he's shaking his fist in God's face. And there was a flurry of similar coins in his last year and a half before he died. Likewise, he immediately built pagan temples that God had previously burned down. Again, an insult to the true God. Another insult was that Titus required Jews to pay their temple tithe to the temple of Jupiter in Rome. Okay? And as a side note, I think just looking at these things, you can see judgments by themselves do not save. They do not change a human heart. Not even hell is going to make people repent. Okay? Until a person is regenerated, he cannot respond to God with love and with trust. 
And obviously, the other Romans followed suit by worshiping Caesar. The plural they indicates it was more than just Titus who blasphemed. So all of that happened in connection with the volcano Vesuvius. Let's look next at bull four. If the former Phil Kaiser is correct, then bull four happened one day later. If the current Phil Kaiser is correct, this happened at least 50 days later, if it erupted in 79. Uh, or 30 days later, if it erupt, uh, 13 uh, months later, if it erupted in um, uh, 80. Now, verse 8 goes on to say, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Now, in ancient symbolism, the sun stood as the symbol of the emperor. So anybody who read this, uh, understanding the old symbolism that was used in the Bible, would have immediately said, Okay, the emperor is in trouble. This is almost identical language to the previous bull where the bull is poured out upon the throne of the beast. Well, now it's poured out upon the sun, but the sun is the symbol uh, of the beast. Now, was this a solar eclipse? Well, I looked at NASA's uh, eclipse tables, and it doesn't appear to have been any uh, solar eclipse then. But we do know that the sun was completely obscured for many days by the raging fires that swept through Rome everywhere, uh, the, the, the fires, the smoke from the fires were obscuring vision, and Titus began to believe, actually, that he was undone. Uh, he was in Campania, uh, where the volcano had erupted. He was trying to figure out, okay, what kind of welfare do I need to bring over here? And then reports came, and he could see the smoke rising from Rome, that Rome is burning down, and uh, he said, I am ruined. Twice in the space of one year, possibly in the space of 50 days, the sun was blackened out, and other pagans were beginning to wonder if uh, Titus was jinxed. We see similar signs before the deaths of Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian. Now, I want you to notice in the next phrase that it does not say that the sun burned the people. That's what some people assume. But it says fire burned the people. I believe the sun was uh, affected because it's blotted out, it's darkened, but it didn't burn the people. Rather, it says, and it was granted to him to burn the people with fire. So this is normal fire, not sunburn. Verse 9 continues, So the people were burned with severe burns. Many people died in the flames. Uh, many more escaped from the flames, but had severe, severe uh, uh, burns. And according to the Roman historian Dio Cassius, there was something about that fire that seemed supernatural. He says it was, quote, not of human, but of divine origin. Unquote. And certainly when you look at the way that the wind blew and some of the other odd features of that fire, it, it seems very weird. He said it wasn't arson, it wasn't uh, accident, this seems like it was divine in origin. Even if you look at the buildings that were targeted and which buildings escaped, that seems very, very uh, remarkable. It seems that it was the buildings that represent the, the dens of iniquity and idolatry that were targeted. And to me, it illustrates God's sovereignty over such things as accidental fires. But it also illustrates how God declares war on the central idols of a nation. Um, the um, political buildings, including the two places where they voted, were burnt down. So that's a perfect symbol of the idols of statism. That fire took out the bathhouses, which were gross places of sexual perversion. It took out the major theaters of the city, which were also cesspools of evil. It took out the chief 
temples of Rome, including the Temple of Serapis, Temple of Isis, Temple of Neptune, and the Pantheon, where every god is worshipped, of course, except Jehovah. He's excluded from the Pantheon. In effect, what's going on here, I believe, is God was judging the gods of Rome, just like in the book of Exodus, he judged, he declared war on the gods of Egypt with all of his uh, plagues there. And if you want a book that marvelously shows how God continues to war against all idols in every society, including America, I would highly encourage you pick up and try to read Herbert Schlossberg's book, Idols for Destruction. I admit it is a tough, 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 tough read. But it's worth it if you can plow uh, through that book and you will come away appreciating the fact that God has not been ignoring the idolatry in America. He has been judging America nonstop in various ways. We just have to have eyes to see how God works. But once again, verse 9 shows continued blasphemy against God rather than repentance. And they blasphemed the name of God who has authority over these plagues and they did not repent to give him glory. Titus has seen one judgment after another coming upon him. And some of his advisors have actually had the audacity to suggest that maybe these are omens from God. But rather than repenting of his blasphemies that he had uttered previously against the God of Israel, he continues to blaspheme God, not just through words, but through minting brand new coins that still affirm that he is God. He is divine. He is the Savior of of Israel through rebuilding of temples that had previously burned, burned down. And the people love him for it. Uh, they love him for his blasphemies. They worship him. So it illustrates that nothing but sovereign grace can conquer a human heart. No amount of blessing, no amount of cursing is going to change a human heart unless God turns in and regenerates. So that's the meaning of the text as I see it. Let me end by giving five more applications. First, it is clear from this passage that God controls such things as volcanoes, epidemics, and accidental fires. After describing the second-degree burns and third-degree burns that these people had from the fire, verse 9 says that God is the God, quote, who has authority over these plagues. God has authority over volcanoes, and not a volcano can blow up without God's permission. He has authority over epidemics, and not an epidemic can rage without God's permission. He has authority over fires. Not a house can burn down without God's permission. And this means we can trust God during calamitous times. He is not arbitrary. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't die uh, through collateral damage. They can. But if they do die, if they do get disease, it's not arbitrary. Okay? It comes from a hand of a God who loves you, and who is always purposefully acting, not only for your good, but for his glory. And he only allows that which would be good. When you look at uh, who God providentially spared in the 9-11 uh, Twin Towers disaster, it is absolutely amazing how God kept certain people away from that. And they look back at it and say, it's only God's providence that it could have done that. But then you look at some of the Christians who died in that catastrophe, and you also marvel at what God did through their deaths. On, on the way here from California, I was reading um, uh, Lambert's book. Um, it's about missionary heroism, and it's been recently published by um, J. 
Generations, uh, Kevin Swanson's ministry. Great little book. Um, and it, it documents some of the coolest stories that I've never heard of before of missionary pioneers who made great breakthroughs and were successful and others who were totally unsuccessful. For example, uh, some of the first missionaries to the New Hebrides, they get killed. They don't even get to be a missionary. They get killed as soon as they set foot on the, um, on the sand. And I finished that story. I'm so depressed. I'm thinking, <laughs> why would God allow that? The very next story that Lambert picks up he picks up the pieces and he shows how God used that martyrdom to blow open missions and actually use that to convert these natives on that island. There is no such thing as a wasted death. God is completely in control. So God orchestrates even the deaths of missionaries to advance his kingdom, but whether God uses calamity for discipline, sanctification, growth of his kingdom, or something else, trust him. That confidence that he's in control can help you to not get bitter. Second, God continues to judge pagan nations with his law. Now, we've been seeing that over and over again in the book of Revelation. One of the chief arguments that people who hate theonomy say is, oh, God's law is not for today. That was just for Israel. And yet, that's not how the book of Revelation functions. That's not how even the law of God uh, was brought up. In Leviticus chapter 18, he says the reason that God was vomiting out the pagan nations in the land of Canaan is because they were violating the very laws that he was giving through Moses to Israel. And so God judges them. That implies that all nations are subject to God's law, will be judged by God's law. God says that's why he judged Babylon. So... This book of Revelation makes it very clear. It's not just Israel that gets judged. The seventh head of Rome is judged. His son Titus is cut off because of their evil deeds. Nations cannot escape the covenantal consequences of violating what I call the legal structure of our covenantal world. Our God does not forsake his law. His hands, his covenantal hands are all over this universe and it's impossible to escape from his law. Third, it is crystal clear that apart from God's prevenient grace, no one will be saved by either blessings or judgments. You could not get more spectacular prophecies being fulfilled in these first five bowls and yet what does it say? They continue to sin. They continue to you know, blaspheme. They do not repent. Until God gave Saul of Tarsus a brand new heart, what did he do? He saw the testimonies. He heard the, the witness and the testimonies probably of hundreds of Christians that he had put to death, but he's still hot on the tail pursuing after these Christians. He's still blaspheming against Christ. He's still persecuting Christ. And in an instant, Christ converts him, turns him around. That's exactly what he did to the, one of the thieves on the cross. Jesus was crucified with two bandits, and uh, both of those bandits, I think it's Matthew's gospel indicates, both of those bandits were blaspheming Jesus. They were both harassing him. I mean, they're going through the same pain. Why are they harassing Jesus? But they do so. That's the nature of the human heart. And yet, all of a sudden, God regenerates one of, those, one of those bandits, gives him a new heart. He recognizes his sin, repents of his sin. He begins to rebuke the other bandit and say, quit harassing Jesus. He has the faith to ask Jesus 
to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. What made the difference? Not that one was better than the other. The only thing that made the difference is God chose to regenerate one. He chose not to regenerate the other. Okay? So it illustrates that the difference between those who come to Christ and those who do not has nothing to do with their personality, their hardness of heart, or their privilege. It has to do with whether God gives them grace or not. This means we must cling to God's grace. We can never presume upon it. Never let him go. Trust his grace can change the hardest of people. But this blasphemy also illustrates the doctrine of total depravity and why that sovereign grace is needed. Romans 8 verse 7 says that the carnal mind is hostile to God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. I mean, what better illustration of total depravity than these people who have been given opportunity after opportunity to repent, but they prefer to blaspheme. Uh, just yesterday, I was watching a video. Uh, uh, it was a lovely video put out by uh, Abolish Human Abor Abortion, but don't recommend you have the sound turned off. I, I turned the sound off and just let the text, which they bleep out the text, you know, of what these uh, guys in Seattle are saying. So the, these abolish human abortion people, they're so loving in the things that they are saying and saying, no, we're standing up for the helpless. You guys believe in helping the helpless, right? Let's stand up for the helpless. And uh, the people in Seattle, it was astounding to see hundreds of people vilifying them, speaking hatred, wanting to kill them. Uh, it, it's just astonishing that this city that prides itself in tolerance <laughs> was so intolerant to Christianity and saying, you're not welcome here. Uh, but that is the nature of the human heart. Apparently, uh, uh, Seattle was demonstrating that rather well. But having said all of that, I will hasten to add one last thought, that God used these judgments not only to take away the worst opposition to the gospel, but also to prepare his elect to receive the gospel. We saw before that these bulls are temple bulls. That means that they are redemptive bulls, right? That means these are redemptive judgments designed by God to advance the gospel in Rome. And the gospel did grow like crazy in the years following these disasters. It's one of the things that made Domitian, uh, which is Titus's brother who replaced Titus, made Domitian so angry. He could not stamp out Christianity. It seemed like the more he persecuted them, the more the Christians continued to grow. It was massive growth. While the people who received these bulls of God's fury did not repent, multitudes of others did repent because of the same judgments, because of the love and mercy extended through his church. When I was studying the archaeology of Vesuvius, I stumbled across a study of businesses uh, in that decade that had become Christian in orientation. The article said this, some pagans became Jews, more became Christians, the new religion out of Judea. In fact, we have the portrait of a couple that owned a bakery that we know for certain were Christians because they removed all the pagan symbols from the bakery and substituted them with a cross. Put differently, Vesuvius did more for the spread of Christianity than the Apostle Paul. I made a film about this. Click here to watch it. I clicked there. There wasn't anything there. <laughs> but he does discuss the archaeological studies that he went through. 
But here's my last admonition. May we always be ready to stand in the gap when God brings his judgments and just like these bowls also hold out redemption, forgiveness, may we be ready to offer the gospel to those who are being judged and may God continue to invincibly advance Christ's kingdom in our own day. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for the hope that it gives. Even in the midst of judgment, Father, you are a God of hope. And I pray that our own faith would be stirred up and encouraged as we consider these things. We love you, we bless you, we know that you are sovereign, and we know that you work all things together for our good. Help us to never waver in our faith and our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.